0: And here at Grassroots, we're a church of people who are learning to love like Jesus loved, which means that we are devoting our whole life to his way of of seeing the world and to expressing his love in it. And it takes a bit of a devotion, so to speak, to that kind of way. We need to learn about him. We need to learn who he was. We need to come into his presence in prayer. We need to enter fully into his life, receive his love. And then learn to translate that love from our heads into our hearts and into our hands. It's a a whole life's devotion to making this kind of love um, uh, uh, incarnated. That's a big word. Incarnated into this world. And we'll talk more about about that today. And so uh, as we get into this in community, this Sunday space is created, it's like a safe space for us to come and to learn a little bit about God and who Jesus was and then be equipped to go out into the world, into your work weeks, to express that love which is, he's given to us out into the world around us. So this season at Grassroots, in this particular moment of our church life, we're zeroing in on that kind of mission and uh, talking specifically about practicing love. And it's not just the ideas of love and the concepts of love which inspire us, but Jesus shows us ways to give it in our relationships, in the very uh, earthiness of our everyday life. And so we remember that love isn't an abstract idea, but it matters in our every relationships. And we all have relationships all around us, whether it's our family, our coworkers, our intimate relationships, our acquaintances. They're all around us. And I don't know, by show of hands, how many people think that relationships are complex? <laughs> All right, we got a good showing there. Relationships are complex because humans are infinitely complex. We are complex people, and then add our brokenness, add our, our fallenness to that mix, and it gets all the more uh, difficult to understand people. And so as I preach through relationships, this is the third part of a five-part series on relationships. You can go listen to the rest if you're interested. They're posted on our Facebook, uh, sorry, on our webpage. Uh, I'll catch you up if you missed those two, though, today. Um, but as, as we do so, we remember that, that as we're complex, I can't give you the one silver bullet to fix your relationships. I can't give you the advice you need today, whether or not in a particular relationship you need to stay silent and serve or stand up and speak the truth. I can't let you know if you should continue investing in a relationship or, or grieve it and move on, I can 't tell you those kinds of things, and neither can really can anyone uh, uh, the closest people that you 're around perhaps may give you some good advice. but the point is not for me to stand up here and give good relationship advice to you because I can't, but the point is, is for me to take the principles that scripture offers us and to show you how in, even in a broken and fallen world we can We apply the love of God to these relationships and they can be transformed and changed and there's hope for them. And I think so as we um, study the love of Christ in the practical space of our relationships, we find that impasses, relational impasses that are deadlocked can be moved past. We can find um, ways to stay faithful to relationships that we're called to, even when we want to move on from them, and as we practice this love of Christ, um, we can understand relationships—the the everyday relationships of our lives—as the groundwork that God uses to shape and transform us. It's in our relationships that our transformation is greatly worked upon. So we see relationships as complex, icky, messy things, and we're confused by them, and we run away from them. But we also have to remind ourselves that it's in them where God is most profoundly at work shaping us. And so we're talking, we've been talking so far about gratefulness for our relationships and how hard that can be. We've talked about how to bear our loneliness uh, as human beings. We all have a great yawning loneliness inside of us that cannot be filled. And so um, what do we do with that in relationships? And then um, next week, we're going to talk about conflict, how the love of God teaches us to move through conflict. But there's this middle space in between all of that today that we're going to get into, and it's called vulnerability. (laughs) We all know what that means, but it's so hard. So we're going to talk about why it's so important that I now, here's the Apostle Paul, a little bit of where we've come from. You'll notice from the initial slide that we're in the letter to the Philippians, which is a small New Testament letter near the end of the Bible. It's a letter that Paul wrote to the community in Philippi. He was in prison writing this letter in chains, getting paper slipped through the cracks probably of the jail cell by his, his followers, writing this letter in his heart the words he had in his heart to the Philippians. He had started this community of believers a couple of years prior, Had has moved on, and is now in prison writing them some pastoral advice. He's greeted them. He's opened up his fears to them. He's not sure whether he's going to be set free or whether this is going to, and in death, this prison sentence, he's afraid, he's not sure, but he's also telling them that he's confident that Jesus is with him, and he's going to give us now, at the beginning of chapter two, some of the most memorable verses in all of the Bible, and it's, it's the great hymn that he pens, or maybe he's memorized, someone else has written, we don't know, the great hymn on love, the true nature of love, and so as this church, in this type, in this moment, If there's any Bible verse that I encourage you to memorize and get deep into your bones, it's the verse that we're on today. So it's the great V pattern. Christ came down, very nature God, made himself nothing, even obedient to the death on the cross, and was raised to glory. It's this great promise, this great V pattern, and it really helps us, I think, when we think about vulnerability. So uh, into Paul's letter here and then into some teaching on vulnerability. And hold on tight because we have a lot of ground to cover. So here we go. To begin with, uh, Philippians 2.1. He begins by saying, Therefore, if you have any encouragement of being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and of mind. And we read that and all of a sudden it, it does feel a little bit like christian a little bit of jargon. So let's, let's dive back into this just a little bit. Paul is going to say to them, if you consider yourselves Christian in any way, in any sense of the word, you're going to experience something and they're going to be great gifts. Here's what you're going to experience. You're going to be united with Christ. Your heart as a Christian is going to be united with Christ's heart. Not just in in relationship, but in his way of being. And so your sufferings, everything that you go through, which is a suffering, is united with his suffering in a way that makes great sense to us. Of all the hard things that we go through, recognizing that anything that we go through, which is suffering, is connected with the cross and the resurrection and hope and promise. So if we're united with Christ, we are comforted from his love. How many people need his comfort today? How many people need the comfort of Jesus' love to be real and true in our life? If any common sharing in the spirit, how many people need to know that he's guiding you and with you and close to you? If any tenderness and compassion, how many people need to know that there's at least one being in all the universe that feels tenderness and compassion towards us? These are our great gifts, the great promises of what it means to be a Christian. But it's not just individual as well. This actually is a great description of what it means to be in Christian community, a healthy, vibrant, working community of people who are embodying his love. Try that again. Think about that in community. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ if there's any encouragement that you are part of something bigger, part of a group of people who are on the same journey as you, if there's any comfort that you receive from his love from, and, and the love from one another, if, if you're in a community and it's healthy, the affection for one another will grow. Our affection for each other should be growing. And if our affection for one another is not growing, something's amiss, something's wrong. Um, any common sharing in the Spirit recognizing that we're not alone again on this path, if any tenderness and compassion, these are the things which are promised to us, not just in Jesus, but in the embodied love which each one of us have for one another. Then make my joy complete, he says. By being like-minded, having the same love, This is the central mode of thinking as Christians. This is the central way we understand everything that we do in life. The kind of love that God gives to us, having the same love and giving it in in turn. And being one in spirit of mind. Now, he's going to get on to talk a little bit about um, what this looks like. Because, okay, these are great promises. These are great hopes. These are great uh, responsibilities, that we hold. Just as much as we receive all of this, we have a responsibility to give it. They're profound and and great. Uh, But he's going to help us. He's going to help the Philippians. And as we peek in on their correspondence, we're going to get a little advice about what this looks like. And here he says, he moves on and says this, giving a little more description about what this means. Do nothing, nothing, out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. How do we do this? How do we be your love for others in the world, Jesus? Um, How do we look like you, in this world around us, that means doing nothing, absolutely nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Now, I'll put this in a bit of a a framework here just to to show us how this looks when it's put side by side. Think about this. Think of how profoundly our relationships would be changed if we took this kind of teaching to heart. Selfish ambition on the one side versus humility, valuing others above yourselves, not looking to our own interests, but to the interests of others. Now, selfish ambition, what is selfish ambition? Because if that's the thing we're trying to root out, let's get a bit of a sense of what that is. Selfish ambition is defined by the word get. I'm after getting something. And we can talk about selfish, I, I'm an ambitious person, I like, to, I like to go after things in the world, but what does ambition look like that it's selfish? It's defined by what I get, what I get from you. If your relationships are marked by selfish ambition, you're asking yourselves, what can I get from this person? And, and put, it, put it coldly that way, it's, it's very stark, but we recognize if we're honest with ourselves, if we have any humility, we recognize that as human beings, this is our default mode. Because when I don't get what I need out of a relationship, that's when I get angry. That's when I get vindictive and spiteful. And we recognize when that happens, when the fruit of getting, a getting kind of posture comes out, it's, it's difficult. It's, it's hard to, to move beyond that in relationships. A selfish ambition, you believe that you deserve the success that you have or the, the success that you hope to have. You believe that you deserve something from someone. If they're not giving it to you, you have a sense that you deserve it. And usually people who uh, are operating out of selfish ambition are always on to the next thing. If, If I'm not getting what I need here, I'm moving on. I'm going on to the next thing. And how many of our relationships, how many of the pattern of our relationships are marked by this kind of moving on too quickly to the next best thing? I don't even have to begin describing what our celebrities are doing in this world. Um, and you are believing that you are God's gift to this world. God has sent you here, and there's no one better. You're God's gift. And you put all of these qualities together, and you realize that selfish ambition is much of what we know of human culture. Now, when I was working about a decade ago at a seminary, I was working at a place that was Christian and prepared people for the life and ministry. I was working there in the Department of Community, Community Life, And so of all places, you think that I would have been, and this place would have been run with um, thinking of others' interests before yourselves. So here's the situation. I'm working there for a few years. I start as an intern. My first year as an intern, working like 10 hours a week for the department that's welcoming new international students into the seminary, giving them welcome baskets, helping them find belonging, helping them get oriented to the community. And alongside of me, I have a here kind of department. If I'm the Department of International Students, they're the Department of Spouse and Family Ministries. They're the ones who are taking care of the spouses and the kids of the community, providing initiatives, examples for them. Now, I started as an intern, and then I became the manager, year two. Year three, I became even, a, like, even upgraded. I got another raise. Year three, I was going to get another raise and become a director. See, I'm an ambitious kind of guy. <laughs> I've got ambition about me. Um, But that was the year where if you were going to be a director at this seminary, you had to have people who reported to you. And I didn't have anyone that reported to me. It was just me and some other interns. And so what they did was they put spouse and family ministries under my supervision. And we had been peers, but now we're competitors. And I won sort of the resources and the finances, and they were going to report to me now. And I'll tell you, I felt awesome. About myself, like, like that will show them I was I was really happy with this, and but I had to be secret about it, right? Because if I if I let anyone know how happy I was, it would just ruin everything. And so, secretly inside of me, grew this delight that now I was going to get to tell them what to do. Now I'm 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 okay, I'm okay to relate with sometimes, but in the, in this scenario, I silently and patiently. Wove together a situation that they had to do, they had to become part of my ministry. And it was subtle and it was small and it was tiny, but it was selfish. It was selfish ambition. And there was lots of other unselfishness about it. Like it was, most of it was okay, but but there was a seed of selfish ambition. And I'll tell you, by the end of that year, it was in tatters. It was miserable. They hated me. They were resentful of me. And I pretty much broke one of my most important relationships that I've ever had. We were sitting across the table from one another. And this person who had founded Spouse and Family Ministries, it was her heart and her vision and her ministry. And we were close friends and mentors. And I valued her relationship above all things. She sat across from me, furious with me. And rightly so. She should have been. And that was the end of our relationship. It broke. Uh, for a time. And then I went and left. I left the place. And then she got to, uh, promoted to vice president um, of, the whole, of the whole, one of the vice presidents of the seminary. And I came back with a gift for her, a book of, um, uh, an autobiography of Queen Victoria. She loved Queen Victoria. And I was in the UK. I found this in a gift shop. And very slowly and over the course of time, our relationship began to grow again. Um, and she gave me a second chance, and I apologized, and, um, and we're, we're friends today. But if we have any selfish ambition, do nothing out of selfish ambition, Paul says. Nothing. Because if there's even a seed of it, it's going to sow the seeds for discord and mistrust. Um, and so Paul says, he's very clear here in your relationships with one another. This isn't just pie in the sky, we all believe in a great God who was crucified. This is in your relationships, this matters. Have the same attitude and the mind of Christ Jesus. Uh, and we kind of, we think of ourselves, how do we do this? Like, how is it possible? Is it even possible to rid ourselves of this kind of thing? Uh, it's, it's woven within us so much. This attitude of mind, I mean, listen here, have the same attitude of mind as Christ Jesus. The world was saved because of a pure attitude of mind. And the promise is is that that can be ours too. We can be transformed and purified in such a way that that is our mind too. Uh, Do you remember that Jesus' final prayer for his disciples in in John 17, I will continue to make you known. Jesus is praying to the Father. I will continue to make you known, Father, In order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself myself may be in them. I say that quickly because that's how quickly sometimes we read it and we move past what this is saying. Think of it, think of slowly. That the love the Father has for Jesus may be in his followers. The very love of God, the pure, lofty, selfless love of God. Jesus is praying that that comes and is works its way in us. So if Jesus is praying for us, the great promise is that we can be selfless lovers too. Um, we We get to the hymn, one of the greatest pieces of scripture, in my opinion, this V pattern of who Jesus is. So I'm just gonna, it's gonna be a couple slides long. I'm just gonna read through it to get us into it here. Have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of our Father. Beautiful, huh? A beautiful hymn bringing our awareness of who God is And I love this picture, and we'll get into this in the Christmas season. We we always get into the Advent uh, teaching in the Christmas season, which is the very God of the universe laying in a manger. if there's any other place that talks about Jesus and the incarnation and God becoming man, it's in Philippians 2. Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And I love this picture because it gives us the V. If we can remember the V... He was God. He became human, humbled himself, became obedient to death, even on a cross. And then God gave him the name which is above every other name. If we can remember the V pattern of the creche in the nativity, we can grasp on to this teaching. And so, I mean, okay, there's so much here, right? So much I could get into about love. Uh, but outside of the direct teaching on love, we get the incarnation. I just want to take a few moments in case you're new to Christianity, or you don't know this. We believe that Jesus was pre-existing his humanity. Unlike us, he was a person before he was born as a baby. He was God himself, Jesus, who being in very nature God. That was what Paul said. That's what the early Christians believed, and that's what we come to understand, that underneath all of his skin and all of his bones and all of his weakness was divinity. Divinity breathed into a baby, and we find that the very nature of divinity in this movement is love. It's self-giving, self-offering, divine love. And if we have any sense that God is anything, we see right here in this moment that God is selfless love. Um, he was coming to show us what love looked like lived out. Do you remember Jesus at the very beginning of his life was baptized? He was baptized. He went to, to John and... Uh, he said, John, I want you to baptize me. And this was the baptism for the repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. But Jesus wasn't sinful. Jesus didn't have anything to repent for. And John said, I don't, you shouldn't be baptizing me. I'll, you, I mean, I shouldn't be, uh, I should be being baptized by you. I shouldn't be the one baptizing you, Jesus. And Jesus says, in order to fulfill all righteousness, I have to do this. And this is what this means. He was coming to show us what love meant in the world, what it looks like. And at the very beginning of love, at the very start of love is humility, owning up to our brokenness, owning up to our dirtiness, owning up that we are part of the problem. That's the first step in learning to love and be selfless lovers like, like Jesus. He didn't have to do, us, but do, the, but do it that way, but he showed us the way. He uh, said that he um, had a God button. He could push the God button at any time, but chose not to. He didn't use that for his advantage because selfless love does not use things for our advantages. Uh, and we find that he was, became nothing. Now, it doesn't say he became bland or boring or anything like that. He became nothing. He didn't have any job. He left his career. He didn't have a wife. He didn't have success or prestige in the world. He made himself nothing and showed us the gateway, the small, narrow gateway to the possibility of becoming someone who could love profoundly like he does. He made himself nothing. And he shows us that if you're gonna do anything important in the world, if you're gonna change the world and not add to its death and destruction, you're gonna be someone who loves people. And if you think, I'm not doing anything great in the world, I'm not doing any, I'm not part of any big social program or social movement. I don't have a phenomenal job. I don't have anything that the world would look at and think of as special. But in your relationships, if you are showing selfless love, you are doing everything that is needed to change the world. But if you're going, you know, I've got this great career, I'm doing great things for God, it's this big project, this big plan, but have not love. All you're doing is hurting the world more and more. So if you have ears to hear what Paul and Jesus are saying, that a radical change in our mind in the attitudes of our mind can be the very thing that God uses to save the world. And up he comes out of this way, out of this doorway into salvation. And he's raised up and he's the greatest human being and the greatest king that's ever existed. He's raised to glory, has a name that's higher than every other name, that at that name, every knee should bow. That's how great and glorious he is because of his way of being. He found the true way to glory. Now, I'll let you know that when we get into what this means for vulnerability, as we're about to, I'm not the best person at relationships. <laughs> like I'm not the best, greatest, greatest friend maker or uh, I'm not great at intimacy in relationships. Um, I'm not speaking to you as an expert here. I'm speaking to you as someone who's learned a few things the hard way. And I want, I want to try to imagine what our everyday relationships might look like with this V pattern woven into it. Uh, And we get these words that come out of this teaching, humility, valuing others above yourself, looking to others' interests, obedient to death. I mean, think of those words in our relationships. What kind of change or what kind of people we might be if this is the way we approached relationships. And we oftentimes pat ourselves on the back thinking, sure, I do this. But then when we look closer and pay attention the patterns of our relationships, we recognize that humility and valuing others above ourselves and looking to others' interests obedient to death isn't necessarily the way we do it. And one of the great words that we can put on all of this is vulnerability. And you think of a a child, a, a little baby in a creche, in a manger, as the personification of vulnerability. We realize that vulnerability is something that is at the heart of the cross. So when we think about vulnerability... Vulnerability should feel like death. Vulnerability feels a bit like dying. It feels like I'm giving a little too much of myself away. Vulnerability in the V-shape, in the cross, feels like you're getting cheated. You're getting cheated out of something. If we begin feeling those things in relationships, now we're starting to get it. But in vulnerability... the the ways that we choose to to be invulnerable and to to keep ourselves from the pain of relationships, uh, you see, is built upon self-righteousness and built upon everything which moves against the cross. So if we're invulnerable, we recognize that it's only uncross-likeness that's there. We're, We're there to protect ourselves from pain. And we also realize that if we want any love, any intimacy, any hope of good relationships, we cannot be invulnerable. Vulnerability is at the heart, is the fuel of relationships. Um, And I want to talk a little bit about um, opening up our stories to one another and transparency. I mean, truly opening up ourselves to another person. Opening our stories, opening our weaknesses, opening our frailties. It's a scary, dreadful thing, and it will feel like death if if we do it well. Um, But we can be transparent without being vulnerable. Transparency is like, I'm an open book. You can, you can know anything about me, but I'm not really opening up myself to potential pain. So we can be transparent all we want, but we haven't reached vulnerability. I am a person, if you know Enneagram or any of that, I'm a four, I'm, a, I'm, I'm the lover, I'm like the passionate person who runs headlong into life. And I'll tell you, that's a painful way of being I mean, like I have this passion about me that makes me just rush into life with my little heart open to everything. And I've learned over the course of many years that that sucks. <laughs> I can close myself off and do this. Um, now I've been transparent with with you guys as a church. Much I've tell, I've, I've been open about who I am or my story or. or but only in the past couple years have I learned to really delight in me being a passionate person. And so sometimes, you know, people think of Keith as like a stoic, scholarly kind of guy who's an introvert. Well, that's because you're seeing my shell. (laughs) I'm beginning to open up the fact that I'm passionate. I love living this life, and I do go headlong sometimes, and it gets me into a world of trouble, which means it's going to get you all into a world of trouble. (laughs) Uh, Hopefully, I'm growing up and maturing a bit, and you're reining me in on that. Um, but it's taken me a bit to figure out how I can open that, not just to you, but to even my wife, my most closest relationship. So I'm learning to embrace that. And when someone opens themselves up to you, when someone decides to be vulnerable and open their story and open their personality, lesson one, don't try to fix them. If they're going to be vulnerable and open with you, the worst thing you can do is to think you're going to fix them. Your job is to do Listen and delight and uh, ask questions, explore, be inquisitive about a person who's opening up. Uh, When we begin to fix people who open up to us out of their vulnerability, if they share their emotions, they share their feelings, they share their passions, they share what's inside of them, if we begin to fix them, it's just another way of us looking after our own interests because we feel a little bit uncomfortable and we want to feel less uncomfortable and we think, well, maybe I've got the answers. What What does it look like when someone's passionate and open and uh, vulnerable with their emotions, what, what does it look like to think primarily of their interests? It's an interesting question. Uh, but the thing about vulnerability is it's, it's what draws people together. If you're not vulnerable, you'll, people won't get you. You've got to be able to bear your weakness, bear your concerns, bear your insecurities. And when you do, when you do that, it draws relationships together. And sometimes people think, well, I've got to be all put together. I've got a show I'm put together. I've got everything figured out. And then they'll really like me, and they'll be, they'll be uh, infatuated by me, maybe. They really want to get to know me. But that's not how relationships work. Relationships work off of vulnerability. When I share my concern and weakness, it touches something in you, and it draws affection. It draws us together. So take time to be together. Take the time of day to... If you want to be a person who fosters healthy relationships. You're going to have to take time to do this. And I would say that 80% of time, you need to take the initiative, especially if you're past school and college and you're in, in life and, and you're, you're grown up. Uh, I would imagine that much of our relationship web looks like one person sitting at home wide thinking, why is no one calling me? Much of what our relationships look like is that, why does no one take interest in me? And the reality is, is that at this stage of life, if you want relationships, especially new relationships, 80% of the time you're going to be the one who's inviting. It's just the reality. Take time to in- invite people into your life. And if you sit back wondering why people are inviting you, it's because they're sitting at home wondering the same thing. That's what they're up to. Uh, and, but you see, don't look to your own interests. Look to the interests of others. It's a very practical way of understanding this. Just get rid of... Um, Uh, relinquish the need to be invited and your relationships will i i I bet start to um take an upturn if they need it Uh, but pray to find friends too you know i think some people sit around wondering why don't have friends why don't people are close and a vulnerable way of being is, is inviting or asking god God, please give me a friend. Give me someone who understands me. Bring someone into my life who will, who will uh, engage with me in the things I like to engage with. And then be open to who comes. <laughs> may not be who you want or are attracted to or are interested in, but they may be the very person that God is answering your prayer. So, uh, vulnerability. Um, we need to open ourselves, get in touch with who we are on the inside, and be willing to crack that open a little bit and make some initiative to make connections with the people who are close with us. It takes great vulnerability, and uh, we, we can't keep ourselves isolated off. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about conflict next week and what the cross means for conflict, um, making yourself nothing, valuing others above yourself. But I want to begin it today because there's a big vulnerability piece involved, um, Vulnerability and conflict. Do not take with you into conflict what you need to defend yourself. Take with you your vulnerability. That's going to be the heart of what I'm going to try to teach on next week, but begin here today. How many times do we know there's going to be conflict, or we're upset with someone, or it's, we know it's not going to go well? We've got to do some truth-telling, and it's going to go poorly. How many times do we spend all of our energy and effort preparing our defenses? here's what they're going to say and here's what I'm going to say in response and here's what someone else is going to say because we hate that, we hate that feeling when we open ourselves up to, to make a conflict or to, to speak some truth and all of a sudden people are shooting back at us and we're, we're ill-prepared and then we go in the room and cry and we go over all the things we should have said to defend ourselves. Like how, many, how oftentimes is that the pattern of our relationships? But with a cross-shaped perspective, we learn to put aside all the energy and effort that we would use to defend our, our kingdoms, and we take with us our vulnerability. What is our part of the problem? What are the ways in which we add to this relational conflict and mess? Um, and when you do so, when you enter into conflict, especially in relationships, uh, it's important, first of all, never to try to gloss over our own mistakes, I mean, even outside of conflict, in a workplace environment, perhaps, you may, you may see this happening. Like, someone's making a mistake. They forgot to order something. They forgot to do this. They forgot to do that. And then you ask, and it's, and it's like, all the mistakes are under the rug. There's no ad- admission that a mistake was made. And then we sort of, okay, well, that's a little thing, so I'm not going to deal with that. And they build up, and little things build up, and little things, and all of a sudden, we've got problems. When you enter into any relationship, People willing to say, "I didn't, I'm sorry, I forgot that. I'm sorry, I didn't do that." We don't enter in with our defenses. we enter in with our vulnerability, and our relationships uh, begin to take the turn they need to. Um, but before launching into accusation okay, I'll get into this more but we come to conflict and go, "You know what? you did something to hurt me. You have a wrong. Uh, you've wronged me in a certain way, and I'm going to here to make it right." When we launch into our, these kind of conflicts, We never should begin with accusation. Never, ever, ever in a cross shaped way of being. We always enter in with our vulnerability. Uh, We enter in with our part of the problem. I'm like listening to an amen from Eve back there. (laughs) No amen for you. I'm I'm, the worst at this. I jump in all the time with my accusation and, like, here's what you did and here's what you're doing wrong and blah, 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 blah. blah. Uh, And that never goes well. But we can enter in with vulnerability. You know what? Like, Here's my part of the problem. Here's the way that I've not done well. And I guarantee that if you enter in that way to any conflict, the ears of the people who are listening to you will be far more open to you than if you're just coming in guns blazing. And if you come across any person in your life that's telling you a story about a conflict they're having in their life, if they're saying, I'm having a conflict with a with a sibling or with a, with a co-worker or with a, a spouse, and they're saying, and they did this and this and this and this, and they're telling you that they have no part in the, the, the problem, like your, your little red flag should be going up. Now, if there's a great power differential in a relationship, a parent to a child or a of boss to uh, an employee, if there's a great power differential, and someone's like, "Yeah, they did this, they did this to me," and there may be a situ- there may be situations in which um, people have no part in the in the in the conflict and the wrong. Now th- that's true. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying probably 90% of most relationships, if someone's telling you a story about all the things that this person did to wrong them, and isn't sharing anything of their own self awareness, then they're fooling themselves. They're fooling themselves. Your friends, and this may be part of your job as a friend, to begin just slowly knocking at that door. What may be your part in this? Can you find even just a little bit that you've done wrong here to create this conflict? Um, Going in guns blazing and everyone else being the incompetent problem is not Christ's way. Um, And try to remember, this principle is important as we do so, that we judge ourselves by the best of our intentions, but we judge others by the worst of their mistakes. So when we go into conflict, can we turn that around? Can we go into conflict judging someone by the best of their intentions? Can we find out and even just empathize a little bit about some of their best intentions? And then can we enter in uh, to to the conflict, understanding our worst mistake? Can we turn that around? I think Jesus does in that V. He turns that around one little more example. Um, have you ever been in a conflict or had a, a conflict and then left and, and then and then, so, and then you said to someone, you know, like when you said this to me and that, it really hurt. And they said, if you would really have been listening to me, this is what I said. <laughs> have you ever been in that moment? If, let me teach you what you should have heard. <laughs> it happens all the time. Don't do that ever. That's, that's like, uh, think of your own interests. Walk into the, the situation going, um, if you're the person who's been misunderstood, never go, well, here's what you should have heard me say. Always say, well, here's what I was trying to communicate. Let me try again. Let me, let me start again. I probably didn't make that as clearly as I could have. See the difference? One of them is thinking about, your own interests, because people should always understand everything you say. Or you're thinking about someone else's interests. What did they hear? Um, Let me try again is a great way of being in relationships. And this all comes out of the cross. Okay, we'll get into more conflict next week. I've got some more ideas. Um, Paul's going to finish off this section of the letter bringing up two examples. He's going to say, You've got to be like Christ. In every step of the way, be like Christ. As my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless, children of God without fault, in a crooked and warped generation. You can do this, and when you do, when you put these the selfless love of Jesus into your relationships, it will change things, and people will go, "What is the difference?" He's going to give two examples, one of Timothy. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus. Timothy, he's like, I've got no one like Timothy. He's the most selfless lover I know. And then Epaphroditus, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but also me to spare sorrow upon sorrow. And I love this little moment before we end here with Paul. He's saying that if Epaphroditus, who gave up his well-being to travel across dangerous roads from Philippi to Ephesus, um, if he had died, I would have experienced sorrow upon sorrow. And You see here Paul's opening up invulnerability to his people. I would have been just mortified. It's, 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 it's a very vulnerable thing to say. Uh, Not, you know, you know. It would have been Christ. It would have been God's will, and we just—he's in heaven—and we buck it up. Okay, I'm opening Pandora's box now. But, um, but you see, that's not the Christian way. Christian way isn't invulnerability. It's finding our way to be eminently vulnerable in all of our relationships. So a few things today. (laughs) Get out your phone. Sorry, that's not, you don't have to. That's not, a, that's not an instruction. If you'd like to capture this, get on your phone. I'm, I'm, I think I'll probably try to put this on uh, the Facebook community page uh, because I think, to me, I'm just like, what are some to-dos? What can you go do with this this afternoon? Uh, get in touch with your emotions as a way to prepare to share them. You may just be in need of some good old time to, to recognize what you're feeling because if you don't even know what you're feeling, how are you going to be able to share that vulnerably? If someone opens up to you, try and listen and ask questions. This is not about you. This is a moment that's about them. Initiate some time together this week with someone you value. Who, 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 who do you want to be uh, in relationship with this week? See if, they, see, see if you can knock on their door a little bit. Journal. Are you judging someone by their worst mistakes? That would be an interesting question for you to journal about this week. Pray. If you need a friend, pray that God would give you a friend. Journal. See if you can catch yourself glossing over a mistake this week. We do it all the time in little ways. Find yourself glossing over a mistake and just once admit to it. A journal about a relationship you've given up on and see where you may have been self righteous in it. And number eight journal. Try and give words to a relational hurt, maybe just even by writing. And imagine what you might say to that person leading with vulnerability. We need a little bit of practice. We spend all this energy and effort going into relationships and building up our defensives, but we have no practice going in first building up our vulnerability or opening and burying it. So there's a lot, that's a lot there, I know. I have just some ideas for you as you go forward. Um, next week on to conflict and then further into Philippians. I'm not sure what is standing out to you or or what exactly God is saying to you today, but I trust he is. I trust there's something on your hearts that God is spurring and calling you forward. In. And I would invite you uh, to take this time now, the final two songs, the communion, uh, to give that over to God in response. Just some of you may just say, God, thank you for speaking to me. Others of you may say, I've been holding on to something I need to release today. Others of you may need, a, need some help. God, I, I need some help with what, with what you're asking me to do. This is a good time to relate with him and and bring those responses. So let's come and remember that Jesus became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And as we remind ourselves that that is the way of selfless love, that is his way of changing the world, and it's such a hard and difficult way, we've got to remember by this symbolic act, week by week, that Jesus broke his body and bled for us and showed us what true love looks like. So come and take a piece of bread, dip it in the juice as a way of prayer, and we'll um, see you again next time. The table is set here, and everyone is welcome.